Amen. Well, the scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 27, 27 to 56. We've been going through a series of sermons on discipleship and following Jesus. And now we are reaching the climax. We're reading Matthew 26. This is a story. This is the part of the gospel about Jesus's mockery, his crucifixion. Read with me this morning, Matthew 27. 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him, and led, a, led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you crucified me, forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him to drink. But others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the temple curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many of the bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When a centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mothers of the sons of Zebedee. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks this hour and this time and this Lord's day. And we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. 
Uh, help us to see the wonders of the cross. Help us open up our eyes to see your gl- glory, your beauty, your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've just been joining us, I've been going through a series of sermons since the beginning of the year on discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And today we're looking at the really apex of discipleship, which is coming to the cross. You know, we're living in uh, some really challenging times. I know that a lot of you at home are wrestling with so many issues and problems and it's so chaotic out there. And even myself as a minister, I get questions all the time and I have questions myself. And mostly the question is, how, how should I think of this from a biblical perspective? Everything that's going around us. Is this just a, um, is this time that we have around us just a random event that we really can't process or understand? Is this some kind of judgment, a curse that God on, has on us in our, in our world? How do I look at this event and the chaos that is swirling around me? I think the best way to understand challenging times is through the lens of the cross. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that he professed to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. Paul says that if he understood the cross, that one thing, he can understand everything. The cross was Paul's lens to understand the world around him. And I believe that the cross is a key lens to understand everything around us as well. At, at the cross, things were dark. There was a sham trial that Jesus went through. There was injustice. There was the mockery, the brutality of the Roman guards. There was suffering. There was an earthquake right after Jesus was crucified, a natural disaster. The world was unhinged. Everything was dark. Yet the cross, what the cross tells us is that in the midst of the darkness, God was at work. God was doing profound things behind the scenes. At the cross, Jesus was restoring, redeeming his people. Uh, the cross is the event in which God would work to restitch, restitch his fractured people, this broken world, to make it whole again. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther said that one meditation on the cross is better than a thousand Bible studies. He says one look, deep dive into the cross is profound and life-changing. And this morning, I want to look at, I want to meditate on the cross. What is the cross all about? Why are Christians infatuated with this one event? And we want to look at three things about the cross. And I want to look at the darkness of the cross, the wonders of the cross, and Jesus' call to take up the cross. Those three things as we meditate on this idea. And the first thing is the darkness of the cross. Last week, if you didn't join us, we were looking at Jesus uh, going to the cross. And as he goes to the cross, he's abandoned by all of his disciples. His disciples leave him. Their faith falters. Jesus is going to have to go to the cross alone. In chapter 27, uh, we I didn't read this section, but right at the beginning, we see that Jesus is handed over by the religious authorities. They didn't have the authority to crucify Jesus themselves. So they hand him over to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor. And he makes a political calculation. And his calculation is that he would rather crucify an innocent man 
than to have a right on his hands. He makes a political decision, so he hands over Jesus. And he, he gives the order to execute him. And before he's executed, we read this section that he is in the governor's quarters. And there, the, the Roman guards begin to harass, beat, and mock Jesus. It says in Matthew 20, the, the key idea in this whole crucifixion scene is this idea of darkness. There's darkness all over the scene. In Matthew 27, 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Sixth hour was noon. From noon to 3 p.m. is supposed to be the, the brightest time of the day. But instead, there's this supernatural darkness hovering over this crucifixion scene. It's a darkness. What is a darkness? What's that about? Well, in Genesis, the first act of creation was God created the light. So darkness means the creation is starting to unravel. That's why in the Bible, darkness is a curse. It's a curse that God institutes. And here, what we see in the crucifixion scene is darkness is everywhere. We see the darkness first in the hearts of men. We see it in the hearts of men. After Jesus is delivered to be crucified, uh, he's in the Romans' quarter, and the soldiers gather together, and they mock and harass Jesus. This is what it says in verse 29. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And the question is, why are the Roman soldiers, why are they harassing and mocking Jesus? They know he's a dead man walking. They know he's going to suffer. Why are they adding to his misery with this mockery? And here, a couple things here. One is their ethnic hatred for the Jewish people. Uh, these were Romans guards. Uh, they thought these Jewish people were beneath them. They had... Uh, they despised them. They despised their race. Secondly, they must have delighted in shaming someone who they thought was, who he thought he was a king. That's why they dress Jesus up as a clown king. They mock him. They take great delight in bringing someone down. We see in this picture, it's a picture of the human condition, the human heart, human society. And it reveals all the ugliness of racism and mockery. And we see that in our world today. Times have really not changed. I was just talking to one of our elders. And one of our elders was saying that in this time and climate, uh, he, his sister was driving in Torrance. They had a young, he had a young child in the back. And there was an aggressive driver that drove really close, really aggressively by them. And he rolled down his windows and he said with a microphone, another effing Asian, except he didn't use that abbreviation for effing. And she felt very, obviously very threatened. She felt very harassed. And we're seeing in this time that we're living in right now, all kinds of hostility toward Asian Americans, physical assaults. And it's a revelation of the, of the racism that, that was already there. Uh, we see that this kind of mocking hatred 
online. Uh, in every internet forum, there are trolls, internet trolls. Internet trolls are people who post intentionally inflammatory comments, pictures, harass, to belittle, to mock. Trolling is an ancient practice. I mean, this goes all the way back of bringing someone down, of humiliating someone. That's what they're doing to Jesus. The racism, the mockery, the humiliation. It's a, real, a reflection of the human heart, the darkness of the human heart, the darkness in our society. And ultimately, the thing that is dark about humanity is that we can't see God. You know, when Jesus goes to the cross, the thing that is repeated by the soldiers and by the people crucified with Jesus is uh, they can't, they, they don't understand, they don't believe Jesus is who they, that he says he is. In verse 40, it says, they keep saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Jesus is crucified between two thieves. And the thieves keep saying to Jesus, Jesus, if you are God, if you are the king, come, come down from here. The soldiers, the uh, thieves, they see the humanity of Jesus, but not his divinity. They see the suffering of Jesus, but they don't see his sacrifice. They have the greatest act in human history right there. They have a front row seat, but all they see is a suffering, feeble man. You know, one of the problems today is that we have the same problem. We can't see God in the midst of the panic. A lot of people are like, you know, if God exists, why doesn't he make this all go away? Why doesn't he take away all the pain? Why doesn't he take away this pandemic? If God is alive, if God exists, make this all go away. The problem is, isn't that God isn't here? Is that we can't see God in the midst of these panic, the panic. The problem is that we're blind to the presence of God working at all things. God's beauty and his power, they are all around us. The Bible says that the, all of creation has given sermons about God. It's testifying about God, but we can't hear him. We can't see and experience the presence of God. At the cross, we see the darkness of humanity, the human condition, the human heart. But the real darkness at the crucifixion scene is a darkness that is going to come upon Jesus. In verse 35, Matthew says, and he says it in a very matter-of-fact way. Uh, he mentions Jesus' crucifixion. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of death. Ancient historians said that it was like someone dying a thousand times. Crucifixion, Jesus was nailed to a tree. But notice that Matthew says that in a very matter-of-fact way. He simply mentions in verse 35, Jesus was crucified. He actually doesn't even mention the nails. That's a detail that the Apostle John adds in his gospel. What Matthew focuses in on is not the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross, but he focuses on the spiritual agony of Jesus. Look with me at verse 46. It says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross is not complaining about 
his hands, the nails, the agony. He's not complaining about the lack of oxygen. What is on the soul of Jesus, the agony of the Jesus, is his relationship with his Father. Notice that Jesus calls God the Father, God, my God, my God. It's unusual because all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' term for God the Father was Father. And yet here, he calls his Father God. It's a clue that the relationship of Jesus to the Father has been ruptured. And that's the essence of Jesus' suffering. What is happening at the cross is that Jesus is not just physically suffering, but he's taking on the curse and the anger of God the Father. Instead of the delight of the Father, he's experiencing the curse of the Father. Think about how Jesus, think about all the uh, anger, the just anger of God the Father for all the racism, the hatred, the self-centeredness, the murder. Imagine God's anger and hatred for all of those sins. And the idea is on the cross, that anger, the just anger of God for those sins is falling on Jesus. He's taking it all simultaneously on the cross. And it's like a bomb explodes in the heart of Jesus. He's experiencing not the pleasure of God, but the wrath of God. It says in Matthew 27, 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus, till the end, is trusting the Father. You know, uh, that quote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is from Psalm 22. And it's, that, it's the idea that to the end, Jesus is trusting the Father, even when he's experiencing the wrath of the Father. He's holding on in obedience and submission. And it says, finally, it says Jesus yields his spirit. You know, Jesus, he didn't have his life taken from him. He gave it up. Jesus yielded his life on behalf as a ransom for his people. Jesus was doing what nobody else at that time could see, that he could have come down from the cross. He could have called a battalion of angels in his defense, but he voluntarily gave up his life. The cross is the place of the, the darkest moment, revealing the darkest parts of human, the human condition, the darkness and the curse that Jesus experienced for us, but what we want to see next is that the cross is beautiful. It's paradoxical. It's dark, but through the darkness of the cross, there's a light that breaks in. And this is the second point, the wonderful cross, the wonders of the cross. After Jesus dies, the light starts breaking in. We start seeing what God is up to. We see the meaning of the cross unfolding. It says in verse 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The first thing that we want to look at is this massive earthquake. Earthquakes are interesting because earthquakes are, it's just the idea of everything being upended. Uh, during this time, we have seen that everything is unstable. We can't trust anything, our health, the government, our jobs. Everything is unstable. 
And the idea of an earthquake is even the ground is unstable. Even the ground that we are walking on can move. Everything is unstable, include the ground that we are walking on. Everything is unstable except the one who is unshakable. The earthquake reminds us that there is one, though, who is overall. There is one who we can, we can only trust. Uh, God often had earthquakes happen at moments of great revelation. So in Exodus, when Moses given the Ten Commandments, there's a great earthquake. Earthquakes are often a sign that God is doing something profound. God is speaking to us. There's a great earthquake that happens after the cross. And what is the message? What is God doing? It says that there's the curtain, the curtain of the temple, it's torn in two. The temple was the place where men met with God. Uh, but because of sin, uh, men couldn't approach God. Men and women cannot approach God. We've seen the darkness of men and their racism, their hostility, their self-centeredness. How can that sinful man approach a holy God? And the idea is that he couldn't. Uh, men had to be separated from the holiest place by a curtain. Massive curtain was, was a separation. Uh, we've seen during this time there are, this time, we're in this time of quarantine, and the idea is that we have to be protected from this virus. We need to make up, put on masks. We need to socially distance. We need to get away because we don't want to get infected. The idea of the curtain in the temple is the idea that we need to be quarantined from God. Sinful men cannot be exposed and cannot come near a holy and blindingly pure, perfect and pure God. We have to be separated. We have to be quarantined by this, by this veil, by this curtain. Josephus tells us that this curtain was, it was a massive curtain. It was 25 meters high. That's like the height of a seven-story house. It was a massive curtain that kept us from God and his holy presence. But after Jesus was crucified, it says from the top to the bottom, this curtain was torn in two. And the idea of it being from torn from the top is that God did it. God is tearing apart this barrier that keeps us from his holy presence. And the idea is that after Jesus' de death, he takes the curse on our behalf. He purifies us. When we place our faith in Jesus, he gives us all of the righteousness of Jesus. And we are wearing his righteous robe. The curtain being opened up means now that anyone in Jesus, anybody, can walk right into the presence of the Holy God. We don't need a priest. We don't need sacrifices. We don't need rituals. All of this age and era of the Old Testament is over because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Now we could... Walk right into the presence of God. We can be wearing our pajamas, basketball shorts. Anytime, any day, we can walk right into the holiest of places. Why? We have the robes of Jesus' righteousness. Because of his death, we can at any time, any time of the day, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, if we have our trust in Jesus, can walk right into the presence of God. 
We can experience intimate communion with God because of Jesus. The cross opened up access to God. But here's the second thing. After the cross, what else happened? It says that the tombs were opened up. The tombs were opened up. In verse 52, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And this little little understood and talked about truth. It says after the res- after the death of Jesus, the tombs, people who had died, saints who had died and were buried, after the death of Jesus, they were raised to new life, many of them. And what is that? Well, it's, there's a lot of questions with that. But it was a preview of what is to happen in Jesus. When Jesus resurrected, it says all of these saints were raised. They came back into the city. It was a preview of the resurrection. At the death of Jesus, one way to look at it is is death died. Uh, John Owen says at the death of Jesus, there was the death of deaths. Jesus, in his death, conquered the curse and the penalty of the curse, which is death. So that death is no longer our enemy. Death is just a means for us to enter into the presence of God. I was looking at, I was reading recently uh, a letter that Martin Luther wrote uh, in the 16th century. In the 16th century, there was a great plague overtaking Europe. And one pastor friend asked, Martin Luther, this question it was the pastoral question, and the question was, could Christians in the midst of the plague flee the city, or did they have a moral obligation to stay? And so Luther wrote a response to his pastor friend, and he said, on the one hand, if you are loving, if you are doing everything you can, and if you can leave and still love your neighbor and not harm your neighbor by leaving, it is it is within your right to leave as a Christian. Uh, Luther, in this letter, he talks to Christians and he says that Christians, we are, we need not mistake faith for foolishness. He encourages Christians to take medicine, to not test God during this time. He encourages social distancing. He doesn't exactly use those words. But he says, don't be foolish. Uh, don't mistake foolishness for faith. But then he talks to people who are called to stay. And he says some Christians are called to stay during the plague. They're called to minister to people who are sick. They're called to lead. And this is what he says. He says, what would it avail you? All the physicians in the entire world were at your service, but God were not present. Again, what harm could overtake you if the whole world were to desert you and no physician would remain with you. But God would abide with you with his assurance. Luther says that, you know, even if you had every doctor and mask and procedure at your disposal, but you didn't have God, where's the peace in that? But he says, on the other hand, even if you had nothing, no medical assistance, no doctors, nothing, but you had God, you have security. Uh, we have in God one who has overcome death. In the death of Jesus, death is no longer the threat it once was. That we have a hope beyond the grave. You know, one of the reasons that the uh, the 
early disciples, they went from fearful to fearless, is that they probably met these Christians who resurrected. They saw the resurrected Jesus, and they realized death was no longer their ultimate enemy. They were fearless because they have seen a man risen from the grave. The death, in the death of Jesus, uh, the profound truth is that we can now enter into the presence of God. Uh, in the death of Jesus, the curse is over. Death is no longer our main enemy. We can live with hope and fearlessness. So here's the final thing. Uh, how do we respond to the profound implications of the cross? And the Matthew shows us clues. How do we respond to the cross? The passage started with Roman soldiers and they're brutally mocking Jesus. They're ridiculing him. But this passage ends with actually a Roman soldier who's actually turned right around. It says this in verse 54. When the centurion and those who are with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. A centurion wasn't just an ordinary soldier. This was a, a leader of a hundred soldiers. This was a captain. And this centurion saw everything that transpired. The, the patience of Jesus. The, the agony of Jesus. Jesus giving up his life. He sees the earthquake and the signs that accompany it. And it says that his mockery turns to worship. Mockery is when you're trying to make someone small. You're bringing them down. Worship is making someone great. Is realizing the greatness and the glory of God. This Roman soldier goes from mockery, tearing Jesus down, trying to make him little, to worship, seeing his greatness and his beauty. His eyes are open to the glory and the beauty of God. One thing that we are constantly to do as God's people is constantly to say, God, open my eyes in the midst of this darkness. Open my eyes to see that you are at work. Help me to see Jesus. Help me to see his beauty and his glory. Help me to see truly he is the son of God. First application is place your trust in Christ. Believe on him. Ask God to open up your eyes that in all things you would see him. You would see his glory. And finally, follow Jesus. Take up your cross. Uh, we've been saying throughout this series that the main idea of discipleship is taking up our cross and following Jesus. Last week we talked about the idea that all the 12 disciples, they failed Jesus. They did not take up the cross. You know, one of the, um, ideas, one of the things that some people have trouble with is all the disciples, 12 disciples, uh, were male. And some people are thinking, you know, understandably, like, what's, what's up with that? Why, why is it an all-boys club? But Matthew, you know, he saves the best for last. And he answers that question, I think, in a profound way. And he reveals this right at the very end. It says in Matthew 27, 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Matthew tells us, uh, it seems that all the, the disciples had failed him, but Matthew reveals at the very end, well, actually, no. All the male disciples did fail him, but there were 
female disciples who did not actually fail Jesus. It says, and it says that they followed Jesus. That's a classic Matthew phrase of discipleship. There are women who are faithful disciples who did not give up on Jesus, who followed Jesus, who ministered to Jesus en route to the cross, who are there with Jesus at the foot of the cross, who visit the tomb even after his death. And what Matthew is saying is, follow these women. These women were faithful to Jesus. Even when all was at loss, they followed Jesus. Even when people were belittling Jesus and fell away from him, they faithfully followed Jesus in the night, in the darkness. They waited until the day broke. One final example of discipleship that Matthew gives us about following Jesus is Simon. Right before uh, Jesus is crucified, he has to, every person crucified had to carry their own crossbeam to the place of execution. But Jesus had been flogged and so beaten by that experience and so traumatized that he is not able. So it says in Matthew 27, 32, a Roman guard picks up a seemingly random person from the crowd, pulls him out, tells him to carry that crossbeam for Jesus. It says, as they went out, they found a man of, of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. It's interesting that this man's name was Simon because there should have been another Simon who carried the cross for Jesus, Simon Peter. Simon Peter had pledged to Jesus he would carry the cross, but he failed. So there's another Simon, a seemingly random Simon, that hears the call and carries the cross of Jesus. Many historians believe the only reason we know who this man's name is, and he's from Cyrene, is that he becomes a disciple. Some historians, some early church fathers believe that he became an early leader of the church. He was, he was so moved by this experience of carrying the cross that he became a faithful follower of Jesus. And I want to end with this question. I want to ask you, if you were transported to the time of Jesus and a Roman soldier asked you, hey, would you carry the cross of Jesus? Would you do it? If Jesus asked me to carry his cross, I would carry that cross till I collapsed, till my arms fell off, because I would see it as the greatest honor to carry Jesus' cross. I'm carrying his cross. I'm walking with him, in front of him. You know, the early Christians believed that they were, they were willing to suffer and even die for Jesus because they believed that in suffering, they were carrying the sufferings of Jesus. They were suffering with Jesus. They were suffering for Jesus. And therefore, suffering was a badge of honor. And Jesus calls you this morning, wherever you are. He says, carry my cross. Follow me. I know it might be hard. I know there might be people mocking Jesus, deriding him. Jesus says to you this morning, follow me. It's counted as an honor to carry the cross of Jesus. I know that this might be a dark time. It might be feeling, you might be feeling like God is not in control. Would you follow these women? These faithful women following Jesus in the darkness, believing that God is at work. 
would this week, this holy week, would you set aside this holy week to follow Jesus? Set aside some time to fast, to pray, to offer up to God your idols, things that you are putting in the place of God. Would you follow Jesus in the midst of the darkness and next Sunday, well, it's Easter. Next Sunday, would you see that after the cross is glory? Follow him, suffer with him, wait, worship, because the light is breaking in. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning. I pray for all people joining us. And Lord, we know that we live in the midst of darkness. And we know that we live in the midst of mockery, of hostility, of hatred. And I pray that in the midst of these things that we would not give in and succumb. Pray that we'd be people of your light. I pray, God, that we would be people who faithfully follow and give witness to you. I pray that this holy week, Father, we would take up our cross. I pray that we would be like these faithful women following from a distance. And that we would roll all of our strength and our hope and find it all in you. And after the cross, I pray that our hope would be glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.